Good morning, Sovereign Grace Church of Orange. As Eric said, my name's Tim Owens. My wife is Becca. We have four kids ranging from age five to age 12. And, and we have taken a roundabout journey to California, back to Georgia, and now back to California. But we have nothing but gratefulness in our hearts for the way God has gently led us every step of the way. And we're excited to be here. And uh, it has been really good to worship with you this morning. Uh, I, we're, it, it's always an honor to be asked to preach God's Word. But I feel it particularly today because my family and I have been so encouraged by your pastors. And so to be able to come here, worship with you, and do just even a small part to be part of, of God blessing you through his word, it's just, it's just an honor, and we're so excited to be here. Uh, we got, I had the pleasure of sitting in Eric's church planting class last year at the pastor's college, and then we got to have lunch with him before he jumped back on a plane and came back to California. And he was a voice in our head saying, yes, it's okay to come back to California. <laughs> We're not falling off into the ocean. <laughs> Everything will be fine. Um, we got to reconnect with Mike at the pastor's conference last November. And then uh, I got to meet Dustin just briefly when he came up to preach at the church in Pasadena a few months ago. And guys, I know, I hope you don't get tired of hearing guest speakers say this, but to meet your pastors is just to be overwhelmed with a sense of joy in ministry. Your pastors are excited to be pastors. And that is not always the case in this day and age in our country. Uh, and so that is such an encouragement to me and I know to the broader denomination. Um, Paul says in Philippians 3 and verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. So that's interesting. Rejoicing is a safeguard. So, something about joy in the Lord protects our heart from the, the schemes of Satan, from the ways that he would try to attack our faith. And your pastors teach that, demonstrate that, model that, exude that better than just about anyone else that I've met. And so thank you so much for releasing them to serve the denomination and, and be a blessing to guys like me. Now, let's turn our attention to God's Word. We are going to be in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27 and going through 12, 12. So if you'll turn with me or pull up your mobile device, Mark eleven twenty-seven through 12, 12. And let's read that together. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? 
But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Please pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Lord, and I pray that this morning you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit and make this parable come to life in our hearts so that we will be amazed again at what you have done by sending your beloved Son. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For our fifth anniversary, my wife Becca and I, we went to Tulum, Mexico. Now, if, if you know anything about Mexico and the Yucatan Peninsula, you know that typically people go there for the beaches. The beaches are beautiful, and we had this great room with a sliding glass door that opened right onto the sand, and, and it was amazing. But besides the beaches, I wonder how many of you know that there's also a vast system of caves under the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, these caves are called cenotes, and often from the top, of the cave, the way you enter, it just looks like a, a lake or a small, a small pond. But once you go down and you dive under the water, you can actually enter vast caverns that never see the light of day. So you, you put on snorkeling gear and you go under, you go under these, these jagged rocky walls and all of a sudden you come up and your head is in the air again, but it's dark and you're in a totally different world. Now, these tours, they obviously take very powerful flashlights so that you're not terrified, because you would be. You would be very terrified without the light. But we didn't know that this tour guide, part of his, part of his shtick was to turn the light off unexpectedly in one of the deepest, darkest caverns. So you're, you know, three-fourths submerged in really cold water, and you're trying not to bump your head on stalactites, and then all of a sudden, the light goes out, and you are 
terrified. And then, to make matters worse, they take a picture of you right in that moment. And I, I thought about bringing the picture and putting it up here on the screen for you, but I realized that then I would lose you and you wouldn't hear anything else that Mark has to say to us this morning because my eyes are really big and I look like I'm trying to ward off, you know, a ghost. Um, just really scared. Um, so then something else happens when they take that picture. Not only do you come away with a souvenir where you look really embarrassing, but you also, right in that moment, it goes from being this deep, penetrating, almost a, a darkness that you can feel, like beating on you, and all in one moment, the whole cavern comes alive. So there's a flash and you see the stalagmites and the stalactites and you see the roof of the cave and everything becomes visible just for a minute. In our text today, Jesus operates like the flash of that bulb. He, he comes in, this world is like that underwater cave, but what's more, my heart and your heart is like that underwater cave. Jesus comes in and the truth of his incarnation operates like a flash of lightning that all at once, everything in our heart, the dark corners are exposed. The stalagmites and stalactites of our sin, the ugliness, the places we don't want to show to anyone else, oh, it, it gets lit up by the incarnation of Jesus. But something else is illuminated as well. When Jesus comes in, we don't just see our true condition. We see something else, something more beautiful than maybe we could ever really dare to hope. The main point of the text this morning could be summarized this way. The unveiling of Jesus' identity exposes every heart and instigates a response. The unveiling of Jesus' identity is like that lightning, that, that flashbulb. It exposes every heart, and it's going to cause a response. You see, in the temple that day, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders they were confronted with the identity of Christ, and the encounter showed them something ugly about themselves. Uh, friends, no one is indifferent to that light. Once it's turned on, we're going to do something. Mark wants his readers and each one of us this morning to have that same encounter. Our text gives us three main points this morning. One, a crucial question chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. Two, a staggering answer, chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. And three, the Father's plan and our response, chapter 12, verses 10 to 12. See, what we're going to see as we walk through this text together is that Jesus is going to turn a, really a hostile, an insulting question into an opportunity to reveal who he is and expose the hearts of the ones who ask it to begin with. But then he's going to pull back the curtain and show us that this, is, this text is about much more than just the rebuke of some men in the temple 2,000 years ago. It, it's a warning and it's an invitation to each one of us. Let's dig into point number one, a crucial question. Now, 
to understand the text, we need to understand the events that led up to this confrontation in the temple. Uh, Our text takes place on Tuesday of Holy Week. So Holy Week is the week leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we have to understand that, that hovering over every conversation, hovering over every word in this passage is the shadow of the cross. Jesus knows what's coming only a few days later. Now on the day just prior to the events that take place in our text, Jesus was in the temple that day too, and he caused something of a commotion. Uh, We've all heard about this. It's one of the most famous stories in Jesus' life. But Jesus comes into the temple on Monday with his disciples, and he sees something that breaks his heart. He sees that instead of using the temple as a place of worship and prayer, the people have turned the temple into a business opportunity. They're just trying to earn a profit. And Jesus Jesus is angry about this. This temple is meant to be a meeting place between God and man. And people are just using it to make money. And so he's flipping over the tables of the money changers and chasing those who are buying and selling out of the temple. So we come to the events of our text. He's back in the temple with his disciples again. And you can understand that the men who are in charge of the administration of the temple might have some questions for Jesus. You know, the day before, he's stirring things up. He's chasing people out. And that brings us to the events of our text. Let's look at verse 28 together. And they said to him, that's the chief priests and the scribes and elders, they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Now, I wonder if you have the same question I do when you read that. You know, at first glance, this seems like maybe, maybe this is an honest question. You flipped over all the tables. So, you know, I just humbly want to know, who gave you the right to do this? You know, so maybe, maybe instead of responding in kind of a confrontational way, Jesus just needs to suggest, guys, why don't we grab a table at Starbucks? Let's talk about the appropriate uses of the temple. Let's just, we'll have a friendly debate, but that's just not exactly how Jesus responds. Let's look at 20, verse 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? So Jesus responds to their question with a question. And this is not entirely unusual for us. We know that sometimes teachers will respond to a question with a question when they're trying to make a point or when they're trying to teach something. And we need to pay careful attention to the question that Jesus chose. It it, it wasn't just a throwaway question. This wasn't Jesus attempting to stump the chief priest with a difficult question, throw out some trivia. No, his question was carefully crafted. You know, first, his question, if you notice, it contains the seeds of an answer to their question. So, All of Jerusalem would have known about John the Baptist and his ministry. Uh, His ministry caused such a stir in Jerusalem that the the leaders of the city, the political leaders, felt like he was challenging their authority in the city. And John the Baptist ends up in jail and then beheaded. And so this isn't an obscure person in the city of Jerusalem. Everyone in the temple knows who John the Baptist is. And, And we can guess that Jesus is not simply referring to kind of the scope of John the Baptist's ministry. You know, what was the peak 
of John the Baptist's ministry. Who did he baptize? That's right, he baptized Jesus himself. So in chapter 1, Mark tells us what happened at that baptism. It was no ordinary baptism. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down out of heaven in the shape of a dove and alighted on his shoulder, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So if, if the Sanhedrin, if the Pharisees, if the chief priests, if they'd been paying attention, if they, were, if they were viewing John's ministry through the eyes of faith, then they would have approached Jesus with a very different posture in the temple that day. If they were prepared to trust that John the Baptist's ministry was from God, they wouldn't have asked this question of Jesus to begin with. So Jesus is giving them something. Also, I want you to look at the categories that Jesus chose to use in his question. Look at it again. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Was it from heaven or earth, God or man? You see, the Sanhedrin here, they asked Jesus a question about his authority. But there are no categories sufficient to answer that question anything less than God or man, heaven or earth. You see, Jesus needed to vastly expand their categories. I think the Sanhedrin wanted to have a debate over the Torah. They wanted to say, hey, show me in the law where it's illegal to buy and sell things in the temple. Why did you do this? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Your, your categories are way too small. If you want to know about my authority, we're going to have to get bigger. Jesus is really saying with this question, are you willing to accept that my authority is higher than your own? Are you willing to accept that my authority is higher than all human authority? And I think that they got it. They understood that this was, this was an affront to them because look how they respond in verses 31 and 32. They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? That is, shall we tell him what we really think? That John was a nobody? That he, he was just human? But they were afraid of the people. For the people all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. So they began reasoning with each other. Okay, and they decide, note that they decide not to tell him the truth. They don't tell him what they really think. They think John was bunk. They don't say that because they're afraid of the people. So what they say is, we don't know. They decided to lie. They decided to lie to Jesus. And you know what? A lie doesn't operate any differently 2,000 years ago as it does today. It always exposes a false motive. It, it exposes a falseness in our heart. That is the falseness that Jesus' question was designed to expose. Jesus is really, if we have the eyes to see it, gently exposing the falseness in their souls that day. They don't care where Jesus' authority came from. The question wasn't honest. Jesus represents a threat to their own authority. And so what they were really saying that day in the temple was, you have no authority here. Get off our turf. Get out of the temple. Stop causing a commotion. This is our spot. That's what the Sanhedrin were doing. Now, though the scribes, chief priests, and elders were not concerned about the real source of Jesus' authority, my friends, 
we cannot make that same mistake today. They weren't interested in the real answer, but the truth is so important for us. You see, in the book of Mark, this scene is meant to be the climax of a theme that runs through the entire book. Let's take a quick survey through the book of Mark. In chapter 1, the crowds were amazed at something about Jesus. What were they amazed at? They were amazed at the authority of Jesus' teaching and his authority over demons. In chapter 2, authority is the main point of conflict when Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic. In chapter 3, Jesus gives his disciples authority to cast out demons. Chapter 4, Jesus has authority over the wind and the sea. Chapter 5, Jesus has authority to raise the dead. We could go on and on and on. Mark highlights Jesus' authority in almost every chapter of the book. But the question before us today is why? Why does Mark do that? Does Mark set out to write a a gospel that just explores the nature of authority? Is that the point of of this book before us today? No, no. no. Mark uses authority as a clue. He uses it as a key. It's meant to point us. It's meant to cause us to ask, who is Jesus? Who has this kind of authority? For, For Mark, authority is a clue about identity. And I think chapter four might be the best example of this. We We all know the story of Jesus and the disciples. They're in a boat, and they're in a dangerous storm, and the disciples are freaking out. And what is Jesus doing in the boat? He's sleeping, yes. He's asleep, and they wake him up, and he calms the storm. And what happens? The disciples are happy and peaceful in their heart at that moment? No. That's not what Mark tells us. Mark tells us that a new kind of fear came into their hearts. This is what Mark 4.41 says. They became very much afraid, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, Jesus' authority over the wind and the sea and his authority to kick the money changers out of the temple and his authority to forgive sins, all of that is meant to point us to a question. It's meant to cause us to stop going about our normal lives and say, Oh, someone is here that is different than any other person we have ever met in our lives. You see, Mark wants every one of his readers and every one of us here today to be sitting trembling in that boat with the disciples with one burning question on our hearts. Who then is this man? And that's the question that Jesus is about to answer in the form of a parable. Point number two, a staggering answer. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, Jesus is going to tell a parable about a vineyard. A landowner plants a vineyard, and he hires tenants to care for it and cultivate it, and then he goes away. He goes away to live in another country. At harvest time, he sends a servant to, as is only right, he sends a servant. The owner deserves a portion of the fruit of the vineyard. He sends a servant to get some. But these tenants decide, we don't want to do that. We want all the fruit for ourselves. So they beat the servant and send him away. And then a series of servants come. Some they beat, others they kill. So this parable is taking a bit of a macabre turn. The tenants are violent men, wicked men. They're killing the servants that are sent. At the climax of the story in verses 6 through 8, he sends his beloved son. 
Now, we should feel some tension building as Jesus tells the story, okay? This is a public place. This is in the midst of a confrontation, an argument between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. Now, what do you do when someone starts to tell a parable? A, A parable is a story that's meant to teach us something, and what I do, if you're anything like me, is I, I try to place myself in the parable. I try to say, oh, okay, okay, you're telling me a story with a lesson. I want to know, where, where do I fit in? What character am I? Okay, so there should be some tension building because the Sanhedrin are listening very closely. They're saying, who am I in this story? Jesus starts the parable by quoting Isaiah chapter 5. And in Isaiah, the vineyard is God's people and God is the owner. Now, in Isaiah, the people are being rebuked for failing to bear spiritual fruit in their lives. But Jesus does something interesting here. He adds a couple of new characters, and he gives the parable, he he gives the, the metaphor a different point. He's making a different point than Isaiah was in chapter five. Jesus adds a series of slaves and servants that appeal to the tenants. Now, if Jesus is building off the metaphor, the analogy in Isaiah chapter 5, then we know that the vineyard's God's people and God is the owner, but then who, who would be the messengers? Who are the messengers that are being sent from God to speak to his people? So this is the prophets, the prophets who are often mistreated by Israel's rulers. But that must mean that the tenants are Israel's rulers. Now, the the Sanhedrin must be seething as they understand this. The, the, the tension in the room, the pressure is building here. There's going to be some kind of confrontation because they're being portrayed as the wicked tenants. But who, then, is the beloved son? Now, you have to rewind. See, you're hearing this parable after 2,000 years of church history. So when I say, who is the beloved son, all of you are like, yes, yes, we know, okay? But I want you to imagine yourself standing in the temple, surrounded by a crowd, watching this confrontation, okay? You've you've heard of Jesus. Jesus is famous by now. You've heard of his miracles. You've heard of his teaching. You've probably heard about his unique authority. And maybe, if you're in the crowd, maybe you're happy to see the arrogant Sanhedrin get put in their place. But listen very carefully. As this parable tracks through the history of the prophets, as we're approaching the the part in the parable of the beloved son, all of a sudden the parable breaks right into the present moment. If you're standing there in the temple that day, by God's grace, it may dawn on you that right in front of you, the beloved son is making his appeal to the wicked tenants. Right in front of you, God's son is appealing to God's people. Now let's, let's pause here for a minute. You see, I'm convinced that in the church there's a unique danger. It's a different kind of danger than you would find for people outside the church. I think inside the Christian church there's a danger that the incarnation will become commonplace. It'll become yesterday's news we know the God of the universe came and put on human flesh, but we, we, cannot, we cannot allow that to happen. God, the creator, has come down to walk among us. Friends, when God walks into the room, nobody 
is indifferent. We, we are not nonchalant. The reality of the incarnation does not allow for a, oh yeah, yesterday's news, no. It, each person is confronted with the authority of our Creator. You see, all motives are exposed as either right or wrong, good or evil, consistent or inconsistent with the purpose for which God created us. Take a look at the Sanhedrin. Their motives are exposed as evil because of who Jesus is. If Jesus was a random guy flipping over tables in the temple, then the Sanhedrin aren't evil. They're just being good leaders. You got to get that guy out of there. But, it, but if Jesus is the Son of God, then I'd say his authority over the temple is pretty well settled. Now, what about you and I? You know, it's, it's tempting to scoff at the Sanhedrin. It's tempting to look back and say, these guys were dunces. I can't believe they treated Jesus like that. But what about Jesus' authority in your life and in my life? You see, just, just like them, you and I are going to be judged by how we respond to this beloved son. Take another look with me at the underlying motives that were boiling around in the hearts of the Pharisees and Sadducees that caused them to respond to Jesus this way. We see fear of man, chapter 11, verse 32, and 12, 12. Uh, we see a desire to be praised and honored by men, chapter 12, verse 38 and 39. We see love of money, chapter 12, verse 40. We see a preoccupation with outward appearance, chapter 12, verse 40. Have you been guilty of these kinds of things? And let me ask you a slightly different question. When I read that list of things that we all know are things that we'd rather not be operating in our hearts, but we know that, that we're susceptible to them. When I read that list, do you have a nagging thought that's like, oh, wow, you know, on the spectrum of sins, like, those are kind of pedestrian. Is anybody else tempted to kind of rank sin in your life where it's like, you know, you know, I might experience some fear of man, but I've never murdered anybody. You know, like, that's what we want to do. We want to kind of play these games to make ourselves feel better. But James tells us that every sin, when it is full grown, every sin, no matter how it starts, when it's full grown, it, it leads to death. That's how sin works. It's trying to kill. And these kinds of sins, if left unattended, if left unchallenged in the soil of our hearts, it will lead us to throw Jesus right out of our hearts the, the same way the Sanhedrin were trying to throw Jesus out of the temple that day. So I want to invite you to consider the identity of the Son one more time, to consider the implications of the incarnation, the implications of the fact that God came down to earth. Because if we understand who he is, then what happens next should be completely astounding. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Wait, the son is murdered? Surely not. That's not how the story ends when the all-powerful creator comes down to visit his creatures. 
He doesn't let himself get killed. But we know the story. We know the story. Three days later, there Jesus will be, hanging on a Roman cross. Even though we know the story, are we awake to the magnitude of what happened there? What could possibly induce the Son to do this? And, and perhaps more pertinent to the, the, the thrust of this parable, what father would send his son to these tenants? Isn't that what the whole parable is begging us to ask? Don't you read the parable, and when you get to the part where the father's saying, I'll send my son, they'll listen to him. We're meant to all be screaming, no, they won't. Stop. Don't send him. This is foolish. They will kill him. If they killed the servants, they'll kill the son. What is the father's motivation for doing that? The answer to that question represents our only hope before a holy God. And that brings us to our final point, point number three, the father's plan and our response. Chapter 12, verses 10 to 12. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus starts by quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And note this, he implies that this is the key to understanding the whole parable. Listen to what he says. Have you not even read? And let's just pause for a minute. This is Jesus talking to the most educated people in all of Israel, okay? So I find that to be really fun. That he's, he stopped and he's like, have you read the book of Psalms, guys? Okay, so he's, he's teaching Israel's teachers how to read their Bible. Uh, but note that the metaphor has changed. So Psalms is talking about a temple. We, we've been in a vineyard where God's the owner, but now we're in a temple. We're, we're building something. We were gardening, and now we're putting on our construction hat. Construction hat. The Lord seems to be building something, and this is a structure that Jesus says is completely dependent upon one really significant, important stone in particular. Now, the original builders rejected this important stone, but Look at verse 11. This was the Lord's doing. Even their rejection was part of the plan. And my question for us today is, what is it that the Lord is building? It's good to have a metaphor, but we get two short verses about the cornerstone and the rejection. What, what's God building with this cornerstone? Well, fortunately for us, we don't have to guess because the rest of the Bible delights in God's mission. The rest of the Bible delights in this cornerstone. Maybe 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6 says it best. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him 
will not be put to shame. Those who believe in the cornerstone become living stones. What is God building? He's building you. He's building His church. He's he's calling a people to Himself. He's rescuing those who repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in the cornerstone, the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. You see, verses 10 and 11 are the key to the whole parable. They reveal how far God the Father, the owner of the vineyard, was willing to go to save His rebellious people. What kind of father sends his son into a situation like that? Only a father who deeply loves his rebellious people. Only a sovereign God who is powerful enough to use the rejection and murder of his son as the very thing, the very act which accomplishes salvation. This parable ends by drawing all our attention to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. As God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus was there that day with all, all authority in heaven and on earth. But the good news for us today is that instead of using that authority to condemn us, instead of shining his light into the cave of our hearts and saying, you deserve death, no, he, he laid that authority down and submitted to death himself so that we could be cleansed and forgiven, so that we could come out into the light. How will you respond to this cornerstone? See, the Bible is really clear. The metaphor of the cornerstone all throughout Scripture serves as a dividing line. It's divisive. It talks, it, the Bible talks about tripping over this stone or marveling when you see this stone. See, there are only two options when you're confronted with the incarnation of Christ. You're either going to reject him or you're going to worship. Friends, there are many who prefer the darkness. The builders in the parable reject the cornerstone. The Sanhedrin, they were building something, but they were building something else. They were building a monument to themselves. They were building a monument to comfort, to their own ego, They viewed Jesus' mission as an interruption of their own plans, and so they reject him. But verse 11 has so much hope for us today because some see the cornerstone and they marvel. By the light of the incarnation and death and resurrection of the Son, many will perceive the love of the Father. They will see the sacrifice of the Son, and they will look around the dark cave of their own hearts their own hollow, selfish ambition, shameful lusts, and they will utterly reject that filthy cave and run into the light of the forgiveness and love of the Son of God. I'd like to just suggest two main points of application this morning. First, friends, will you take a minute to consider what you are building? What are you building? I think this metaphor is helpful for us Because we're all constantly striving towards something. You're giving your time, your energy to something in this life. And it's like you're building something. What is it? What are you building? We might not be the Sanhedrin literally plotting the death of Christ, but we are more than capable of building our life on something other than the cornerstone, are we not? We we must receive the warning of this parable. 
nothing will stand apart from what God is building in Christ. Have you been guilty of subtly rejecting Jesus' authority in your life? Are there sinful attitudes, habits, actions kind of hidden away in the last cavern in your heart that you're hoping nobody will see, that nobody will ask you about? Do you sometimes just want them to stay there, hidden? Friends, if, if that's you this morning, I pray, I invite you. Talk to one of your pastors. Talk to your community group leader. Talk to your spouse. Talk to a trusted friend. Uh, it is hard for us to get over the hump to shine the light on those places, but when we do, what is there is the massive love of the Father and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And number two, and finally, we ought to marvel at what God is building. Guys, do you ever worry that the church is kind of weak? That, that the message of the gospel is not strong enough to stand up in the marketplace of ideas and the culture war? Everybody's screaming on social media, on the news, in your neighborhoods, and we worry, I don't know if the gospel is, is, is strong enough, a voice in this. Oh, we ought to be deeply encouraged. The Father is on a mission. The Father. He's creating a people for himself. Do you think his plan will fail? No. There's nothing in the universe that's more certain than the success of the church. Not because of our talent, our good looks, our charisma, our money, our popularity, not because of any of that, but because the Father Builder and the Son, the Cornerstone, and the Holy Spirit who lives in you and in me, the living stones. This is what the Lord is doing, and it ought to be marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for meeting us this morning in your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be gently at work in our hearts. If there are hidden spaces in our souls that need to come out into the marvelous light of Christ, oh Lord, in the way that only you can, I pray that you would give boldness uh, to bring those places out and experience the love and healing that you have offered us in Christ. And Lord, if there's discouragement, if there's weakness, if there's weariness, oh Father, I pray that we would walk out of here rejoicing, marveling, confident, because your mission will not fail, Lord. We're so grateful for your love. We're so thankful for you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.